Hey, Rarecast listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new program from Global Genes called Data DIY. Access to data is essential for advancing the understanding and treatment of rare diseases. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is to be as savvy about data as researchers and clinicians. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders how to become empowered data owners and stewards. If you'd like to learn more about the program, attend an upcoming Data DIY workshop, or view resources, go to globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Horgan was attending Harvard Business School when he started reaching out to leading researchers to learn about his brother Terry's condition, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and what could be done to accelerate efforts to find a cure. Horgan was taken with the work of Timothy Yu to develop a customized therapy for a young girl with a form of the rare neurological condition Batten disease and founded the nonprofit organization Cure Rare Disease to develop customized therapies to treat patients with rare genetic conditions. We spoke to Horgan, founder and president of Cure Rare Disease, about the organization, his efforts to develop a treatment for his brother, and what it will take to scale the process to address the needs of a large group of patients with rare genetic conditions. Rich, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. We're going to talk about your organization, Cure Rare Disease, customized therapeutics, and the potential to develop treatments for individual patients with rare conditions. Let's start with your brother, Terry, though, who has the genetic neuromuscular condition, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. He's 24 today. What was it about Terry's experience that led you to create Cure Rare Disease? Sure, I think it's a it's a great question, and it's one that makes you really really think a lot as somebody who has an older brother or son or daughter with uh, a rare disease. And for for my family, although it's different for many families, I think we have similar commonalities um, but between our story. And so what I would say is that you know Terry's been fighting Duchenne muscular dystrophy now for. Well, over, obviously, for, for his entire life, but really since the symptoms started to manifest, which was when he was five or six. And so with with that, at the time he was diagnosed, there was really nothing out there to help uh, him or other boys with the disease. And so thankfully, over time, there's been more uh, sort of large-scale, one-size-fits-all, if you will, pharmaceutical development. But unfortunately, what's happened is that the clinical trials and the pharmaceutical companies are not um, catering so much towards the older boys or the non-ambulatory boys. And so although there's promising developments on the horizon, such as microdystrophin gene therapy and exon-skipping type drugs, um, the older boys, including my brother, are really left out from those approaches in terms of being able to participate in clinical trials. And so, you know, what's, what's 
what's a big shame is the fact that we've had a significant amount of progress made with, with regards to, to building up the clinical trial pipeline. But unfortunately, there's a significant fraction of uh, Duchenne patients, and I think this statement is valid for other rare diseases as well when you generalize it, that simply aren't amenable or uh, applicable to these trials. And so, you know, at one end, you have this, this faint light of hope that in the end of the tunnel that there could be something effective to reverse the disease or stop the disease, but you've got a large number of patients who simply aren't going to be able to access those therapies in an experimental phase. And so what, what happens is, is we need, we need treatments faster, simply put. And that's the reason that we started Cure Real Disease was because we saw an ability to rapidly develop customized therapeutics based on the individual in much shorter time periods than was otherwise being done. So a really amazing story and really the catalyst for this organization and this endeavor we've taken upon ourselves is the work that Tim Yu did in Boston Children's Hospital in 2017. And so what we saw with Tim is that in less than a year, he was able to develop a customized um, oligonucleotide, uh, an ASO, uh, similar similar modality of Sarepta Therapeutics is using, that was customized to a little girl with Batten's disease. And in less than a year, Tim was able to ideate, create, get approval, and actually dose the patient and went on to help slow the disease. So this was this was really a, a remarkable finding and development. And so so Tim is a close mentor of mine and said, you know, how do we take this process and apply it more generally to rare disease patients, including Duchenne? And so that's that's how we got started and that's why the organization exists, so that we can take and ensure that today's patients see tomorrow's cures because the current paradigm won't likely allow for that. What's it like to have a loved one with a serious medical condition and feel it's not being addressed as needed? I, I, I think this is a this is a this is a point that is sort of easily understood or felt by people who are affected by rare disease, either themselves or their family. And and the short answer is it, it feels morally wrong. It feels terrible to see these treatments, whether effective or not, unfortunately we've seen a lot of recent drug failures um, within the Duchenne space. Um, in the, in the last year. Um, but, but it feels morally wrong to have had put so much time into helping to either fund if you supported a nonprofit or participated in a clinical trial only to not be allowed access. And I think that's, that's a difficult point. But, but my frustration, my personal experience is that the inclusion and exclusion criteria of clinical trials has always been four or five years farther ahead than where Terry is, or behind where Terry is, I should say. And so that, that to us is very frustrating. And, and so we took it upon ourselves, we cure rare disease, to bring together the best and brightest researchers in the world to work on this disease and to really treat this as a proof of concept. And now the modality, the technology we're working on, we'll probably get into that a bit later, is a CRISPR-based therapeutic. And so while Tim Yu's therapeutic was an ASO, um, this CRISPR-based therapeutic will be first in man once we get into administering the patient after getting FDA approval. Um, and so we're, what, what we're doing is we're using a CRISPR activation technology, so being able to activate dormant genes or inactive genes to restore functional benefit to patients. Um, but, but to round out your question, I, I would say that, you know, it's frustration, it's hopelessness, it's powerlessness that has 
led us to where we are now. And I think this, this, I think a lot of your listeners would resonate with this when they say that, you know, it's frustrating to feel like so much progress has been made, yet when you look at the actual, the actual experience of the patient, although Duchenne patients are living slightly longer, there's still no truly effective treatment or cure for the broad population. And to me, that's incredibly frustrating. I, I know in addition to Tim Liu, you had come across Monka Leck, who was a, uh, a Yale School of Medicine geneticist who looked at Terry's case. What exactly did he tell you, and how did that lead to the idea of doing a, a CRISPR technology? Great, great question. Um, I think, you know, you know, to be honest, it was a bit like what you see in the movies. Um, I was in New Orleans for a muscle conference in 2007, and so, you know, this is a collection of, of the best and brightest researchers, and Michael and I had a relationship before. Um, you know, we were on very good terms, and I knew about his work, and I knew what he was doing, and I'd, I'd met his, his, his partner, Angela Leck, and she was Lou Kunkel's postdoc, so you can sort of see, like, the train that I, I came to meet Michael through. But, you know, I, I was there in part to understand what currently is being done and what's not being done and where can we uh, take a new approach um, to, to push this forward. And so I remember this moment very clearly because Monkle and I were standing on a balcony at this hotel where the conference was being held. And I was expressing my frustration that, you know, despite all this progress, my brother's none the, none the better. Um, and there's nothing on the horizon for him either. And so Monkle said, um, you know, let me take a look at his genetic report. And uh, I'm, I'm sure like many families are maybe, maybe it's kind of an odd one. Um, I, I had his genetic report on hand and, and ready to go, you know. <laughs> um, so I sent it over to him and he was like, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't expect that you'd have it. And like, no, we don't, we don't mess around here. Um, so, so he took a look at the genetic report and said, well, you know, I've got this strategy I want to try. I don't know if it's going to work. Um, it's new. It's not been tried before. But, but let's see if we can't, can't give it a shot. And so it was through that that we uh, established and developed the first uh, cell line for my brother, so basically a patient in a dish by taking a muscle biopsy. And what we were able to do is we were able to understand down to the genetic and molecular level what's going on with my brother. And that's important because we were able to, if we're going to develop a targeted and rational therapeutic, we need to make sure that we're hitting the right target once we develop it. And so that was the first phase. And so this whole conversation set off a cascade of effects, a cascade of effects of where we stand now. And so Monkle took a look after the cell line was established and analyzed. And by April 2019, he developed a therapeutic construct that, in a dish, had restored my brother's um, missing protein back to back to good levels. And so um, it gave us a lot of confidence, and it really kicked off what became cure rare disease. Because now it was, now we had something tangible that we could put our hopes on. We had something tangible that was sort of more than just, um, hope and a prayer type stuff, but we had something that we could actually act upon. Raising money, bringing in the next group of people, or in addition to our current collaborators, expanding our collaboration to include other scientists that would get us into preclinical development, which is where we are now, and then eventually patient dosing and administration. Um, which which we've got lined up for for hopefully the end of 2020. So all these pieces, you know, that that one conversation in New Orleans at that hotel triggered a, a, a cascade of work that you know is being applied to my brother now as a proof of concept and and is being applied in a scalable manner because my, behind my brother we've got uh, two or three other boys that were developing 
uh, customized approaches for. And so our goal was to show that, you know, can we prove this? Can we take a customized approach to a really, really, really difficult disease and end up with functional improvement for the patient? And that's truly the goal. And now there's a lot of sort of secondary goals along with that and, and enabling goals, if you will, to make this to make this happen and sustainable in the long term. You know, working with payers and insurance companies to say, you know, what does it take to build in a new reimbursement model for these customized approaches? Working with the FDA to say, um, you know, we've, we've seen other N of 1 cases go through, N of 1 meaning one uh, single patient treatments. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, we've seen Mila's case with Tim Yu at Boston Children's. Um, we, you know, there's other on the horizon that are starting to approach sort of these one-off family type foundation things. But how do we, how do we create a sustainable pathway within the FDA so that we don't have to spend years and years and years and, and tons of extra money? Um, testing and testing when, when, you know, the, the, truly the best test is to, uh, well, one of the best tests is to make sure that there's, uh, pharmacology testing in, in, in a mouse or a rodent model and then a cell line test for toxicology and efficacy. So trying to shift this new paradigm of thinking around patient-centric drug development, um, and truly walking the walk, not just talking the talk, which I think occurs a lot of the time. You had alluded to this earlier, but Walk me through exactly what the approach you're taking for for your brother. Uh, in the case of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, the problem is a, a, genetic, a genetic mutation prevents the, the proper production of the protein dystrophin. How is, mm-hmm. how is this approach hoping to activate production for him? Yeah, good question. So, so what we're doing, let me give you maybe a bit more of the context to answer the question. So when we when we took this muscle biopsy back in uh, 2018, um, we analyzed it on both a protein and a transcript level. Um, what we found actually is that Terry was producing uh, low levels of dystrophin and having a mutation as Terry does on the first exon of the dystrophin gene um, wiped out the muscle isoforms. And so with wiping out one of the three isoforms of the dystrophin gene, that is what led to him having Duchenne. But what we didn't expect and what we found was actually he had low levels of dystrophin protein present in his, in his, um, in his uh, muscle biopsy. Um, and that work was done by uh, the folks at Boston Children's Hospital. And so what we found is that the body was trying to compensate for lacking dystrophin, and it was compensating through the upregulation of an alternative isoform called the cortical isoform. So for all the all the molecular biologists folks out there, that's the CP427C isoform. And so the, the strategy became how do we use this CRISPR activation technology to upregulate that alternative isoform as we saw that the body was compensating with it already. So it decreased our concerns about uh, immunogenicity effects, uh, excuse me, immunogenicity problems. Um, and so that, that's basically the strategy is how do we use a CRISPR activation technology to upregulate this alternate isoform to provide the, the patient a functional benefit. Your brother is the test case here. What's the process for developing a potential treatment? Have you gotten to a point where there's a, a regularized set of processes you could walk any patient through? 
that that's what we're trying to build from the beginning is actually the approach to make it scalable and, and that's that's exactly I think what your question's asking. You know, what's the generalizable process? And now what what really this this groundwork was all laid by by Dr. Tim Yu at Boston Children's Hospital and what he's done with Mila. And so what what the process is is first you need to understand the patient mutation down to the molecular and genetic level. So really down down as, as deeply as you can go to understand, okay, in my brother's case, we've got a 30, 30 kilobyte deletion on exon 1, which is wiped out the muscle isoforms. Um, we see there that the transcript activity is, is, is significantly, well, is relatively untouched. And so, you know, sort of knowing, understanding the patient at a very deep level then allows you to go and say, okay, well, what strategy could we take here to, to improve the condition? And so for my brother, it's, it's the use of CRISPR activation. Um, you know, if you've got, a patient with a, a duplication, likely the best strategy is to use uh, a CRISPR approach to knock out a duplicated exon. And so th- this type of process to understand the patient, to theorize, and then con- to develop um, therapeutic candidates and then test that in the patient's own cells and understanding, does, you know, does it produce protein? What's the effect on the transcript level? That's really phase two. And then once we see in vitro or in a dish, activity uh, or success of the therapeutic construct, then we move, after this has, of course, been replicated, validated, all the proper steps you would take in, in traditional drug development um, to, to make sure you're, you're, you're seeing something that's accurate and not a, not a red herring. Um, the next step from there is to begin dose-finding and toxicology studies, and that's where we are now. So we set up our dose-finding studies with Charles River Labs, and they're also uh, growing our mouse colony. So in doing these things, we understand it works in the patient's cells in vitro. We then start to test it in, in humanized Duchenne mice because, remember, this is a CRISPR-based therapy. So we're using human guide RNA, which you can't, from a, from a technical point of view, you can't, you can't, you're not going to see much benefit in, in testing this approach out in a, in a non-humanized mouse model. So we, we, we do our dose-finding study and our toxicology study in, in mouse model, humanized Duchenne mouse model. And in parallel, we begin engagements with the FDA. So right now, we're um, putting together our, our uh, briefing packet for submission to request an interact meeting. And this is really where you want to get your first insight into what the FDA is thinking. Um, it's, it's more of a hypothetical meeting in the sense of, you know, what do you think? What's your what's your approach? You're, try, you're really trying to get out of the FDA sort of what their thoughts and feelings are on the approach so that you can build it into your development plan. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to sort of assume things, go down this long development cycle, only to find that, you know, the FDA didn't want those experiments. They wanted these experiments. So having that conversation up front allows us to basically build build that into the model and save us a lot of time and money. And so... Once, you know, once this preclinical dose finding and talk studies done in parallel with the FDA conversations, having an interact meeting, and then a pre-IND meeting, once those are accomplished, then it's really about um, preparing for dosing the patient. And so that's, that's really one of the final phases is, is, is clinical planning for a therapeutic administration. So making sure you have your clinician on board, making sure that there's a care team ready to receive the patient and and, and, and really planning for, for the worst, right? Because you want to have the clinical team ready to go if there's any problem. Um, because above all, patient safety is really the, the top thing that we're after here. Um, 
And so that's that's a bit about the process. You know, if you try if you think about generalizing it, the process is, is generalized to multiple diseases, multiple mutations. And so really what we're trying to test here is is a different thought process, a different approach to treating rare genetic diseases. Because if you look at a at a you know, at a for instance, uh GPX four mutation, um, there's a very, 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 very small population of people with that mutation. So it begs the question of, well, these people are sick too and they need help, but the potentially the economic incentives aren't there to do so. And so the this patient population will be overlooked. So our thinking is that if we if we test this approach uh, on a proof of concept case and are able to show functional benefit, then the ability to expand that to other gene mutations and, and other disease types classes, I think is much higher. And and really, cure rare disease here is in the position of bearing a lot of the risk, right? So if we can if we can prove that this approach is viable and if we can start to lay the groundwork for future infrastructure with payers, with regulators, then we hope that we can open up a new paradigm of treating these rare genetic diseases um, that was that was uh, not being used before. And what in terms of investment and time needed to get from Terry's genetic data to a, a potential therapy, what kind of investment and time are you talking about, and how do you think that might be improved upon as you regularize the process? Yeah, so I like to use the analogy of like computers, right? If you think about the first computer that was ever made, um, it wasn't cheap. And um, it, it took some time, but it, you know, if you start to think of computers nowadays, obviously they're significant, uh, significantly cheaper, and everybody has them. So, where we see a lot of the cost falling in, in future development is really around um, both macro and micro levels. So, if we're able to do multiple of these approaches in parallel, if we're able to um, reap the benefit really of falling AAV costs as 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 more supply comes online, those are two of our main cost drivers. I would also say that, you know, if we look in terms of, you know, other bottlenecks, um, really that at least we've started to identify with regards to customized therapy development, you'll start to see that um, really to make this sustainable, we really do need to get payers on board. But certainly payers aren't going to just jump on board with this as, as they shouldn't. You know, they should they should require proof. And so we're had we're in active conversations with payers to say, you know, what what's the burden of proof look like to establish a a reimbursement mechanism? Because while we as a charity can you know raise millions of dollars, we're certainly we certainly suffer the bottleneck of a limited number of patients to be able to be treated if we don't get insurance companies on board. And so it's they're all parts of the ecosystem that we are trying to bring together to make this happen. And so um, I think in order for this to be truly sustainable in the long term, getting payers on board would be critical. And how settled is the process with FDA, and is there some need for the FDA to develop a, a formalized pathway for N of 1 therapies? Oh, this is a great question. Um, so so the short answer is um, there there is the beginning of a process for N of 1 therapies. Um, I believe the I believe the the approach is individualized expanded access IND, and so what what Doctor Yu did, or or another approach is compassionate care. Um, what what Doctor Yu did at Boston Children's Hospital was to be able to convince the FDA that you know this 
this is a very dire situation. We've done um, a significant enough amount of testing in both the patient cell line as well as in animal models to convince ourselves that this is A, safe, and B, is worth dosing the patient with. And so um, generally, generally for, for large-scale drug development, you know, the FDA wants to see um, a, a rodent model and then a larger species. But I think the thinking is, is that with CRISPR-based and, and gene therapy-based technologies, really the, the translation between mouse to larger animal to non-human primate to human is, is a tenuous one. And so really the, a, a big concern beyond the pharmacology, which we can test in, in animals, you know, absorption, digestion, metabolism, excretion, um, is the activation of, of genes that we don't want to activate. You know, if you think of like oncogenes or cancer-causing genes, um, this is obviously a big area that we want to stay away from. And so the best way to test that is really in the human cell line. And so by, by trying to think outside the box of it and say, what, what are the things we're worried about and how do we test them? I think we can start to look at developing a new pathway. So to, so to answer your question, I do think a new, a new pathway is, is important to build into this. You can start to see, um, the FDA is, is keenly aware of, of needing at least a new approach to dealing with these N of ones. I think Janet Woodcock's editorial a few weeks ago in the beginning of October um, painted a nice picture because it came out a couple days after Tim Yu's um, uh, publication did. So, you know, basically saying that the FDA is aware that the FDA. Um, now, I don't, I don't, I don't want to paraphrase uh, Dr. Woodcock too much, but but basically it was saying that the FDA is aware of this and and that you know they're they're going to need to look into it. So I think I think now is really one of the best times for individualized therapeutics because we're starting to get the macro factors, back to my earlier point, we're starting to get the macro factors lined up so that we can get the system ready to handle customized therapeutics. You're working with some well-established players. You had mentioned Charles River Labs, and you're also working with Nationwide Children's Hospital. What roles are they playing? Sure. So so we work right now with... Um, Six and it'll it'll soon be seven uh, institutions across the U.S. and they all play different roles at different times. Um, if you sort of look at this development through the lens of of a uh, relay race, um, you'll have players in the beginning hand off the baton to subsequent players who pick up from the work that had been done earlier. So the University of Massachusetts conducted and created the cell line. That bioinformatic analysis was then carried out by UCLA with Stan Nelson Group. Um, from there, that analysis was handed over to Yale School of Medicine and, and Dr. Monkolek, who developed the therapeutic candidates. Now, with the finalization of the therapeutic candidates occurring now, um, we, we need to get the, the preclinical mouse dose binding and toxicology studies done. And so that's what Charles River is doing. Charles River Lab, um, under the direction of Dr. Warren Black, uh, is setting up our mouse colony as well as helping us to build out the experimental design for dose finding and talk study. Um, in parallel and, and in addition to Charles River, we've got Nationwide Children's Hospital who's producing the AAV for both the research grade studies as well as the human studies. Um, what we wanted to do here is recreate as little of the wheel as possible using using technology that we knew worked or had shown benefit before. Um, so Nationwide is really a, a top um, AAV producer that, that we've seen success with in, in humans. 
trying to trying to create as little recreate as little delivery as possible. So what that led us to is basically saying, how can we take known delivery mechanisms, change the cargo out for something that's going to help the individual patient, and then move forward with that? Because it, each 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 additional step that you add to this overall process, um, you know, it boils down to time and money, and and we don't have a lot of either of those. And so how do we how do we push forward with as as a well thought out experimental design as possible, incorporating as many of the voices up front as possible so that we aren't surprised down the road, including the FDA, including payers, including clinicians, including researchers, all at the same table, um, so that we have as few surprises as possible and that we can minimize, that we can really minimize the risk as much as possible. The industry has long promoted numbers that suggest it can take about $2.6 billion in nearly 10 years to develop a drug. What gives you confidence customized therapies can be produced to treat patients with rare mutations in a, uh, an affordable and sustainable way? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, what we saw with, with Dr. Yu's work at Boston Children's, what we're seeing with our own is, is, is cost figures in the, in the realm of about $2 million for patients. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I think there's some macro factors that would bring this cost down. Um, I think if you look at uh, existing companies out there with gene therapies, you know, you look at Volgensmo, which is 2.1 million. You look at Lusterna from Spark Therapeutics, which is in the million and a half and, and up area. So, you know, we know where payers are willing to pay today. I know that, I believe that, and I would hypothesize that, Additional gene therapies, such as, you know, sort of fill in the blank for, for neuromuscular conditions under development, are going to fetch a higher price. Um, I would say that, you know, if you, I would say that future or, or gene therapies under development right now will fetch a price tag of probably $3 million or more. And so if you start to look at it and say, wow, $3 million bucks for, for a one-time administration of a life-saving drug, it's a lot of money. But it starts to help paint the picture of what ballparks we have to operate in to make this a salient and feasible model. And so right now, if you say, okay, well, you know, if you're at two million bucks and you've got some micro, you've got some sort of situation-specific factors that'll help bring that cost down or increase throughput, and you've got macro factors that we expect to come down in the future, such as the cost of AAV as supply comes on board. You know, you can look at the analogy of like um, antibodies. Um, you know, from, from decades ago, I think you can start to see costs drive towards, you know, under two million bucks. And so it raises the question of, you know, to what degree is a payer willing to reimburse that figure at, um, given functional benefit? So that, that's really the million dollar, the billion dollar question, if you will, that we're trying to answer now. And, and to be honest with you, I don't have an answer right now where the, the story is unfolding as, as, as we see it. But what we are seeing is that it's not out, it's not, it's not impossible. Like I said earlier, I think changes in, in regulatory pathways are necessary, but I think doable. I think changes in the payer perspective to say, well, would my patient, you know, what, what's best for the patient? Um, the, the therapy that's designed for them, you know, think of a, like a tailor-made suit or the one-size-fits-all approach. And now, as a patient, I don't really care what helps me. I just want something that can help me. But I think what we've seen uh, with, with this development that we're working on is that you, you can move quicker 
when you're trying to design things for the individual, and those lessons that you learn based on the individual are applicable to the population and to the whole. And so while while the work that we're doing, you know, benefits a handful of individuals right now, I do think that the ramifications of the work we're doing will have far larger in, implications and echoes down the road. And really to try and open up a new door of therapeutic development. You know, I think one of the things we've seen really since the beginning of biotech is sort of this traditional drug model, but but what how can we challenge that? How can we try to disrupt the status quo? Because we all know it takes too long and too much money to, to commercialize a drug. So, so how can we take a new approach to do things differently? And I think that's what we're trying to try. Or not what I think, that is what we're trying to try. Excuse me. That is what we're trying to do through this development. How scalable do you think this process will be? And, and what do you think it'll take to both scale it and, and regularize it? Yeah, how scalable? I think that's a good question. I think when you look at, at least in the rare genetic diseases realm of the world, you know, it comes down to mutations on a, on a genetic level. So do we have therapeutic modalities that can target those effectively? And I think it's a growing answer of yes. Um, in terms of scaling, like I said uh, like a few minutes ago, um, working with payers, working with regulators to remove um, bottlenecks or things that slow the process down, I think it actually believe quite strongly is a strong pathway to really enabling customized therapeutics. Now, that is the reason why we, we developed this through a non-profit biotech versus a for-profit biotech is the ability to take different risks um, from from a, a organizational structure and development point of view than would likely be allowed in a for-profit. I think there's um, also the incentives that you have to look at in the not-for-profit versus the for-profit. Um, I, 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 I truly believe that, you know, it, it takes capitalism to move the needle forward, but I think when you look at the incentives of our organization versus, you know, others, you know, truly at the end of the day, the incentive is to have the patient. Um, I don't, I don't financially benefit from this organization. I don't, I don't draw a salary. Um, our board is a volunteer board. Um, what's different about us, I would say, than other organizations is the fact that we involved in the organization, both on a technical and an, and on a developmental side and non-technical side, is the fact that everyone involved is touched by a rare disease, right? So recently brought on a, 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 an individual responsible for community engagement, and so her sons are touched by, by a rare disease. Um, our researcher, Dr. Moncolette, he himself suffers from a rare disease. Um, our board is all touched by rare disease in different states in their life, and so it really brings the best incentives forward. You know, I'm a big believer in, in aligning incentives. And so what, what we try to do in this organization is align the incentives in the right direction so that we can move quickly and everybody knows the goal they're after. Staying hyper-focused on the goal and getting us through the day is at least how we're going to, to prove this concept um, and then from there to scale this concept. Rich Horgan, founder and president of Cure Rare Disease. Rich, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And if there's uh, any, if, if your listeners are interested, you know, they can feel free to reach out to me. Um, our website is www.curerarediseases.org. And then we're across all social media platforms with the uh, handle at Cure Rare Disease. And, uh, you know, feel free to drop me an email. My email is on the website, but uh, it's rich at curerd.org. And again, thanks so much and really appreciate the time. 
Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.